The annual Feds Feed Families campaign has raised nearly 100 million pounds of food since 2009. The 2023 campaign, just a few weeks in, has the goal of gathering more than 8 million more pounds of food this year. For an update and how you can help, we turn to the Feds Feed Families National Chairwoman, Andrea Samal. Ms. Samal, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. Nice to be with you today. And the Acting Deputy Assistant Agriculture Secretary for Administration, Dwayne Williams. Mr. Williams, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. I'm delighted to be with you today. Thanks for having us on. Let's begin with the overall outline of the Feds Feed Families program. This has been going a number of years now. And what families do we hope to feed here? We're very excited to uh, yet again lead this campaign, the Feds Feed Families campaign for 2023. United States Department of Agriculture, we are committed to feeding people in this country. The Feds Feed Families uh, campaign, as you mentioned, started back in 2009 as an opportunity for the federal workforce to be able to give back an in-kind contribution, more particularly into food, but we also would take time and whatever support that you can give to the food banks in your local area. The idea is that here's what we do know, is that while we've made a significant impact, Tom, that you mentioned over 107 million pounds that we've collected over the last 14 years, the need is still there. More than 33 million families are suffering from food insecurity in this country as we stand here today. And so with all of that said, this is our opportunity. The federal workforce, who never, by the way, ceases me with their generosity and what they can do in helping to to bridge this gap. As many of us are aware, uh, the food banks during the summer months, uh, the cupboards are bare. The cupboards are bare, and we need them more than ever during the summer month. Why is that so? Well, mostly because uh, many of our school-aged kids who depend on healthy foods uh, through the National School Lunch Program, also managed by the Department of Agriculture, um, those foods are not available for them uh, during the summer months. We have families who are working and and really struggling to make ends meet, and we know that because of what's happening at the food bank. And so right now, we're just excited about another opportunity as the federal workforce to be able to step in and fit in and continue to make a difference in the lives of the American people. All right. And Andrea, are you looking for donated food items or really cash contributions so that the food banks can use their buying power to to get what they feel they need? Well, Tom, thank you. There are actually five different ways that a person, an employee, can contribute to the Feds Feeds families. Uh, One, of course, is by donating food to a local food bank or pantry in their area. Another way is to donate through a financial donation to, again, a food bank in their local area. They can also participate by uh, contributing, if they're a gardener, contributing food from their garden to a food bank in their area. So, And then they could also participate participating gleaning events, and we invite everyone to visit the Feds Feeds family website so they can look for new opportunities to contribute through and donate through the Feds Feeds families campaign. And just a quick follow-up on gleaning events, that is, you can glean a field where, you know, we're instructed by the Great Book not to glean the corners of your fields, leave that for the poor. So this is to do that gleaning for the poor. How does that work? That's exactly how it would work. You would go to a 
producer that is interested in participating in Feds Feeds Families and then work with that producer, that farmer, to harvest products that uh, can then be dropped off at a local food bank. You could also glean at a food bank itself by helping to repackage donated food and package up boxes for families to collect. And we have more information on gleaning activities as guidelines on our website, Feds Feeds Families. And this is a national effort, I'm presuming. And let me ask you this. I mean, in some areas that are highly populated, like the counties around Washington, they have large, elaborate, easily accessible food banks. What about the rural areas or some of the, you know, tougher urban areas in the country where, you know, there's not even a grocery store sometimes that's great in those areas, let alone a food bank? How do you deal with the people that are a little harder to reach? At the United States Department of Agriculture, we have more than 4,500 offices around the country. And with that being said, all of our employees, this is USDA alone, and that's not counting because this is a national food drive, as you indicated. That's not counting all of the offices among the other federal agencies in this country. But just in USDA alone, 4,500 offices around the country, and all of our employees are participating in this event. So here's what we intend to do. We intend to work with our employees that we've done in the past and have them to identify food banks of their choice in their local areas. And the food that they collect at those offices, those food are then transported to those local food banks. And so the goal, as you mentioned, is to reach every food bank in this country so that we can continue to make the impact that we've made so far over the last 14 years. We're speaking with Dwayne Williams. He's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration at the Agriculture Department and Andrea Samal, National Chair of the Feds Feed Families Program. And what types of food, if you're going to donate food, are you really looking for? I mean, like a whole case of Wonder Bread might not be ideal if you can get something a little bit more nutritious and calorie-packed. Well, we would encourage everyone to work with their local area food banks and pantries to see what are the most requested items that they need so that we can provide an immediate impact and assistance to the families in that area. But obviously, we are looking, as you mentioned, for healthy food, nutritious food, diverse food as well, because we have a very diverse population in the United States. So we encourage everyone to check with their local food banks to see what is really needed at this time. And what kind of corporate, if any, or say community support at the non-federal level do you get for feds feed families? We work very closely with food banks and shelters and pantries around the country, particularly here in the in the Washington, D.C. area. We uh, work with the Capital Area Food Bank, so others might eat. Um, there's also a nationwide group called ampleharvest.org. Org, and this is where you can look for um, food banks that accept produce from local gardens. And this way, we are able to, again, provide that immediate assistance and support to those who may need it. And Dwayne? Because of the way this campaign is structured, many of the families that works at USDA and throughout the federal workforce, many of their relatives are non-federal employees. And so I do want to point out that this this drive and this campaign is being led by the federal workforce is not designated for just the federal workforce. So your families and your friends that may be employed anywhere, whether private industry, it does not matter. What we're looking to do is have an impact because our goal this year is to fight hunger and to give hope. There's no better way to do that than to engage with your community in its entirety. And so that's our goal is to spread this wide and far 
to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to participate and to make an impact. And how long does the program run? The program this year, we started in June 26th, and we will run through September 30th, which is the end of our fiscal year. Got it. So everyone who is going to get a school lunch, they'll be in place by then. By the time you're done, everyone will have had access to those meals that, as you say, disappear in the summer. Tom, I do want to add this, though, and great segue to what I want to say here. Hunger and food insecurity does not end on September the 30th. There's still a need throughout the year. And so what we're looking to do is not just end it there, although the federal campaign will end there, there is an opportunity to participate and to make food donations throughout the year. Yes, Feds Feeds Families is a year-round initiative that the federal government does. We focus on the three to four months of the summer because that is where we see the need is greatest. And as Dwayne mentioned, the food banks and the pantries really need our assistance. But everyone can contribute year-round through the Feds Feeds Families. And we have a dashboard that you can, when you donate, you can immediately see the impact of your donation by registering and logging your donation on the dashboard. And we are very close, I'm pleased to say, we're very close to having donated 2.5 million pounds since the start of this year. And we're, as Dwayne mentioned, we're really hoping to increase that with the help of the federal workforce around the country to more than double that and possibly, in fact, have donations that exceed 8 million pounds. And there's a special event coming up next week in this program. Uh, Yes, Tom. Next Wednesday, July 19th, is the Fed Feeds Families' third annual day of giving Stuff the Truck event, and it is the Feds Feeds Families campaign hallmark event. At various locations nationwide, federal employees from different departments and agencies will host or participate in events to pack, stuff, load a truck, car, or van with donated food to deliver to area food banks and help others in need. In fact, we know of one Veterans Affairs Agency, which is hosting a Stuff the Stretcher event. So that's very fun. All right. You've got the rest of the summer then. Andrea Samau is national chair of the Feds Feed Families Program. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Tom. And Dwayne Williams is deputy assistant secretary for administration. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate the support. And again, they're both at the Agriculture Department. We'll post this interview along with a link to how you can give about Feds Feed Families at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs>
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.